Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Welcome and thank you for listening. I am Daniel Strain and I'm here with my co-host B.T. Newberg. Hello. We are also joined by our special guest, Reverend Michael Dowd. Reverend Dowd is a best-selling evolutionary evangelist, eco-theologian, and science-based prophet whose work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Newsweek, Discover, and on television nationally. He is author of Thank God for Evolution, How the Marriage of Science and Religion Will Transform Your Life and Our World. The book was endorsed by six Nobel Prize winning scientists, noted skeptics, and by religious leaders across the spectrum. Michael's wife is science writer, evolutionary educator, and fellow climate activist Connie Barlow. The two have spoken to more than 2,000 groups throughout North America since 2002. Dowd's passion for proclaiming a pro-science, pro-future, nature-honoring message of inspiration, what he calls the gospel of right relationship to reality, has earned him the moniker Reverend Reality, as he speaks prophetically in secular and religious settings about our shared and sacred responsibility to future generations. Our listeners who haven't seen it should make an effort to check out Michael and Connie's site, thegreatstory.org, particularly the three-part video series, Standing for the Future. Michael, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, it's a delight to be here. Good to, good to talk to you, as usual. And you as well. Um, given the depth and breadth of what you do, um, we could easily enjoy talking for hours about your work and fascinating ideas. So let me focus the time we have, if I may, and I'll do this by assuming, in our case, that our audience is mostly naturalist. I will also focus by maybe addressing some things that aren't in your already great videos, articles, and books. Yet at the end of this, I want to be sure to leave our listeners with some of the uh, prescribed action items uh, that, that you list um, so that in some small way we can contribute to your mission. Hey, Daniel. Yes. Can I interrupt just to unfocus it just for one second? One thing, <laughs> okay. One, one thing that's really interesting about Michael, uh, Michael, you have kind of a little bit of an unconventional living situation, as I understand it, you and Connie. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. be happy to. Um, for the last 14 years and a couple months, we've traveled North America. We permanently live out of the generosity of others who open up their homes to us. Uh, we don't have a home. We don't have an apartment. We don't have any place. In fact, we even just shrunk our storage unit. We did have for the last seven or eight years a five-foot by ten-foot storage unit in Ann Arbor, Michigan that we get back to once every couple of years or so. And we just shrunk it to a five-foot by five-foot, and it's only about half full. We wow. we unstuff unstuffocate. <laughs> we didn't realize that we that we were stuffocating, and uh, so we un we unstuffocated, and we're just thrilled. But yeah, it's interesting. The first eight years. We were typically in somebody's home with them there, 
and just occupying their guest bedroom and sharing their kitchen. And we were there for three to seven days. So every three to seven days, we were in somebody else's home. The last six years, we now have a state-by-state file of people who have offered us a second home or vacation home. So now, more often than not, we are in somebody's home without them there for three to seven weeks at a time. And so, like, for example, I'm speaking to you from this incredible home in Chama, New Mexico, uh, that almost borders a 40 or 20,000 acre nature preserve. We saw elk last night on our walk. And we're here for two and a half months, and we've got the place to ourselves. So it's it's people think, oh God, they're, they're homeless. You know, they live out of the generosity <laughs> of other people, and it sounds like a renunciate lifestyle. It sounds really tough. I promise you, it's a blessing. <laughs> hey, own it, own it, man. <laughs> no, I just I wanted to bring that up, not only because it's entertaining, because I think it really underscores your commitment to your message. Thanks. Yeah, and it also thanks. underscores the kindness of other people. And their willingness to be a part of what you're doing and to yeah. support. Amen. Amen. And, and for those of aren't, that aren't familiar with our message and our whole approach, basically where science, inspiration, and sustainability intersect. At that intersection, mm-hmm. it, that's our passion. That's our message. And, and the two sciences specifically that we focus on are ecology and evolution. So basically where ecology, evolution, and spirituality intersect, you could say that's, that's our passion. Well, let me ask you this. Um, can you describe for us what you mean when you use these words? God, revelation, Christ, Christian, and salvation. Okay, sure. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I speak as often to groups of humanists, freethinkers, atheists, skeptics, as I do Christians, Catholic, Protestant, even the occasional progressive evangelical minister that invites me in, usually takes quite a bit of courage. Um, uh, and, and I've also spoken hundreds of times to New Thought, New Age, integral Eastern groups. Um, and, and I can do the same program in all those settings. So the, 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 the terms that you just articulated are specifically for a Christian audience. And I, in my book, Thank God for Evolution, I was very much trying to sort of hold religious people by the hand, especially Christians, and gently lead them into an ecological evolutionary worldview. The last three and a half years, now that we've got climate change in a much more major way than than we've ever had had before. Um, I think I was a techno optimist, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, anyway, I had more of a linear view of uh, trajectory of history and, and all up until three and a half years ago. But now I'm basically smacking people on the side of the head, and I'm saying, you know, we 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 have to live in right relationship to reality. So to come to your question, for me, God and reality are interchangeable terms. God is is a mythic name, a sacred name, a personification, if you will, of reality of of what's real, whether we believe it or not. And we need to either live in right, like any other species, we need to live in right relationship to reality or we'll go extinct. It's just not that much more complicated. Um, And the word reality didn't exist for the ancients. So what we mean by the word reality, that is everything we're dependent upon, what what gave us birth, what nourishes and sustains us and what receives us when we die, whether you call that the, the universe or God or the goddess or the environment, um, we need to live in right relationship to that reality. And um, so that's what I mean by God. Uh, reality, you could say reality with a personality, not a person outside reality. So that's God. Salvation is is the, the turning, the repentance or the turning from living out of right relationship to reality, living out of integrity, which for me, the word integrity are the practices, the exercises that help us live in right relationship to reality. Um, individually, 
relationally and also with the ground of our being. That is with with the natural world, with God's nature. I I I will sometimes use language specifically. Uh, as a as a spiritual naturalist, as a religious naturalist, as a Christian naturalist, I use mythic language as saying something uh, metaphorical or or symbolic about this one reality in which we live and move and have our being. So all the language that I use of that's religious is interpreted in a in a this world realistic way. Um, so salvation is whatever it is that helps me come back into right relationship to reality when I've been out, when I've been deceptive or arrogant or, you know, distrustful or, you know, whatever it is, all the things that lead us to be out of right relationship to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, Christ for me is a personification of integrity. I mean, there's only one path back to right relationship to reality. It's the path of integrity that is honoring my word and also living in right relationship, not only with the human realm, what, but to the degree that it's possible in a, in a, system that it's is itself sick you know we're living in a dysfunctional system we're living in an economic and political system that almost forces us to live out of right relationship to the air water soil and life upon which we depend so that's challenging in itself but for me christ is a personification of of uh, of, of the future for me as a christian naturalist for example i interpret the trinity not as three otherworldly beings that I need to believe in to go to some special place when I die, but as the past, the father, that is the, the creator, the past personified 13.8 billion years of creativity and whatever the creativity is that brought the universe into being, per, that personified, that is giving a voice, an I-thou relationship to the past is my personal relationship to the first person of the trinity. Second person in the Trinity is the future. What does the past give birth to? The the you know and and where do I find joy, salvation, uh, fulfillment, happiness is when I'm a blessing to the future, when I'm a, in service to the future, when I'm a savior of the future. To me, that's what being a Christian, a savior of the future, is all about. Doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't matter what I, my beliefs are, and and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. For the Hebrews, as I'm sure you know, the Hebrew word for spirit, Ruach Adonai, Ruach Elohim, there was a personification of wind and breath. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to believe in the breath and you don't need to believe in the wind. I mean, these are inescapable realities that uh, are, are, you know, so for me, relating to God is relating to time in a sacred way, past, future, and present. Um I forget what other words you asked me for. But <laughs> well, I, I thank you for that because um, the thing that fascinated me, but I come from a, a Christian background, conservative Christian background, family growing up, and uh, uh, I was largely ignorant of the existence of naturalistic Christians or even highly progressive Christians who took more of a naturalistic uh, a take on it. And so... Even up to the time that I founded the Spiritual Naturalist Society, I had a hard time finding examples from the Christian tradition of this naturalistic uh, uh, movement that we're seeing in a lot of traditions. And and so uh, you were one of the best examples I saw. And I'm, I'm curious because uh, you're very good about uh, praising and crediting the many authors and researchers and philosophers that have informed your synthesis. But I'm wondering how you came to this framing of Christianity in a, in a consistent use of these terms and ideas because I've been working on a synthesis of Stoicism and Buddhism and a modern understanding for about a decade now. And so these kinds of, I guess, 
from one musician or cook to another, I'm interested in your process. You know, how, how did that, all, this, this framing kind of come about? I'll share my recipe with you, brother. No problem. <laughs> um, it, it happened in stages, um, as, as evolution usually does. Um, in 1982, I was a student at Evangel College, which is affiliated with the Assemblies of God. Um, uh, and I at first freaked out when, I, when they showed the textbook that we were going to use in biology class, and I knew that that textbook taught evolution. And I literally walked out of class, I, I, and I, I, I withdrew from the course. And I told my roommate, Satan obviously has a foothold in the school. Um, and so I used to be an anti-evolutionary fundamentalist, although I had been raised Catholic. But I had this born-again experience because I was struggling with drugs and alcohol and sexual issues during my late teenage years. And I didn't have, as I now do, an evolutionary understanding of my inner nature. Um, in fact, my first, the first TEDx talk that I did was on evolutionary psychology and brain science, like why we struggle and suffer. So what happened was I met a Buddhist Christian. I met this guy who was the most Christ-like person I'd ever met. And yet he was so liberal in terms of his theology that my theology said he was going to hell. And yet... So my, my head said, get him saved, but my heart said, ask him to mentor you, because that, that was amazing. And he was totally into evolutionary theology, process theology specifically. So that's where sort of the opening to evolutionary forms of, of religiosity. And then in 1988, February 1st of 1988, I was introduced to the work of Thomas Berry. And uh, Thomas Berry became a major mentor of mine uh, from, that, from that, literally from that day on. Um, in fact, I would say that he was – the two major influences in my life have been Thomas Berry and then more recently, just in the last two and a half years, is William Catton. I can say more about him later. But so in 1988, several things happened. Um, Sally McFaig, who's, a, who's an evolutionary ecological theologian, um, uh, she was writing books on sort of uh, metaphor and myth and how we use language and – and she didn't use the word personification, but but um, uh, partly because um, Stuart Guthrie hadn't written his book that's now become standard in the field until 1994, uh, Faces in the Clouds. But in any event, she she was clearly talking about our, our you know models and metaphors and, and analogies that we use for reality, for ultimacy, uh, for primary reality, um, and. So I, in 1988, I read her and Matthew Fox and Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and Miriam McGillis, who's a real popularizer of Thomas Berry. But but a big piece was I met a, I read an, an essay actually it was chapter two of a book by uh, called A Primer on Radical Christianity written by Gene Marshall Gene and Joyce Marshall, um, and um, it was the title of the article was was um, What reality are we pointing to when we use the word God? And it was really a popularization of Rudolf Bultmann's work. And um, it, it was like between meeting Thomas Berry and, and becoming sort of a student of his and then this essay and Sally McFaig, I really went from being a supernaturalist to a naturalist almost overnight. Uh, certainly in the, in the year of 1988, that happened. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, I really embraced um, reality as my God, evidence as my scripture, uh, big history the history of everyone and everything is my creation story, um, ecology as my theology, um, integrity, that is the practices of living the right relationship to reality, really became my spiritual path, and doing whatever I could to ensure or to foster a just and healthy future really became my mission. So I, I've articulated that sort of in a credo just recently, but really that became my reality, I would say, in 1988. 
Well, that's interesting. I um, because I I wonder about some of the uh, um, kind of strict uh, naturalists or the uh, you know strict rationalists, and and they might be wondering why bother with all of this Christian overlay and God talk at all. But I think it comes down to the power and the the kind of inner transformative power of personification and how we relate as human beings to things. And I, I really adore your emphasis on the relevancy of personification. Um, in your and also, video. And also oh, go ahead. it's, it's a deeply, deeply personal thing for someone who has embraced that whole symbol structure, uh, whichever, whichever one it is. I mean, for me, it was paganism for another person. It's um, Buddhist iconography. And for another person, Christianity, and you've you got to meet people where they are. Exactly, and when you get personification, when you really get that that's what our brains do instinctually, um, for 99% of human history, in order to have a healthy relationship with the more-than-human realm, um, we really needed to uh, to personify. That we, no, It's not a matter of needed to. We did. That's just what we did. Um so, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been exciting to me is that, you know, in 1994, Stuart Guthrie wrote his book, Faces in the Clouds, A New Theory of Religion, which really brought all the scholarship uh, for decades that had been done on personification into one volume. Um, and it was just priceless. It was just, a, it became really the foundation of an entire research discipline called evolutionary religious studies. And then, of course, just recently, I think two years ago or so, Conservation International teamed up with, um, with uh, uh, Hollywood, basically, a lot of Hollywood, mm. you know, stars, and created the uh, the video series um, natureisspeaking.org. dot org. Yeah, and I was going to mention that actually. Uh, oh, when yeah. you showed that piece of Julia Roberts speaking as Mother Nature, yep. um, I was genuinely moved by that, and I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't being spoken in that way. And if anything, that proves that. Um, if someone like myself can be moved by that, it proves that knowing the myth is a myth, and knowing the personification is a personification does not break the spell. Exactly. That's exactly it. It's interesting because you're. You, are you? Do you still live yeah. in Texas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, I spoke at uh, uh, at the time. Davidson Lore was pastoring the uh, Unitarian Church in Austin, okay. and um, uh, he invited me to come down and, and do an evening program. Um, I, I since had done a Sunday service, but this was just an evening program. And his staunchest atheist came to my program. And you could tell the guy was loaded for bear. I mean, he was ready to just <laughs> blow my ass away. And um, and over the course of my program, I mean, I, I mean, I've spoken hundreds of times to groups of humanist atheists and free thinkers. I knew that my program would work for him, even though he didn't know that at the start. So over the course of the you know sort of forty five minutes or hour long program that I did, I could see him softening and softening. And finally, uh, when I opened it up for questions, he, his was the first hand to shoot up, and he said, "You know, Michael," he said, "I I, I got to be honest with you. I came ready to fight." you. Uh, he said, but I found less and less that I was wanting to fight with, except for one thing. Why bother using the word God at all? I mean, just why just not drop it? If you're meaning reality, I'll just say reality. Why even bother using the word God? And I said, well, that's a good question. In some senses, it's pragmatic. Um, uh, there are, you know, 55% of the human population in our world are Christians and Muslims. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like what BT said. you got to meet people where they are. Exactly. Yep. And I, I just don't see in the next 30, 40 years, which is when huge changes need to be made for us to live sustainably, even if we have any hope of that. I just don't see that happening. I, don't, I just don't see three or four billion human beings stopping using God talk. Yeah. But I do see the possibility that at least a huge number of those can't, when they use the word God, what they mean is reality with a personality. And it was not just something you can believe in, some otherworldly being, but what's inescapably real, whether you believe in it or not. And, uh, and it was funny because to his credit, he, he looked at me, he tilted his head, he said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> And then he stayed there. He was the last one there. He helped me clean up, you know, pack up my books and stuff like that. And the next day I got an email from Davidson, Laura, the pastor. He said, what the hell did you do? You won over my staunchest atheist. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. You know, I I personally myself in my practice, I don't use the G word. I don't use God talk. But that's because I found my kind of spiritual lexicon more in the eastern side where you've got more kind of, you know, Taoist, Buddhist approach kind of thing. And to me, that's what I relate to. But I certainly understand, uh, you know, what I call um, deity practice, you know, a a framing in that way. And we have some materials on our side about that. And we definitely support naturalistic pagans and others who do that. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with you on everybody's spiritual practice is different. And it's what's right for them. As long as we understand and are mindful about what we're really doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I, I listened just before this conversation. Uh, I, you know, I was on your website and I was listening to some of the podcasts and I listened to number two, the humble approach to knowledge. I love most of it, but some of it drove me crazy because it was so individualistically focused. Yes, having an epistemic humility is important. Uh, oops, sorry about that. Having an epistemic humility uh, in terms of what we know and being humble about what we don't know, yeah, that's great. That's obviously great. But we are at a time in human history where the collective intelligence of our species around ecology specifically, the, the, the broad range of sciences that have to do with being in right relationship to primary reality, the air, water, soil, and life upon which we depend is so vital that I think the stance of, well, we don't know, you know, I mean, it is sure if physics is your primary science that you're talking about, sure, there's all kinds of realms that, you know, we don't know, or we, you know, there, there's all kinds of real interesting, weird, crazy, wonderful stuff in there. But when it comes to the sciences of ecology, we actually know a lot. And uh, in fact, what we know is vital to our survival as a species. Mm. And so, um, I, I would love to see in the spiritual natural society at least one wing of it uh, really beginning to deal with some of the more collective societal issues, not just the personal spirituality. Um, that's one of the things I love about Taoism. I mean, it's really the science of right relationship to the way of life, the, the way of nature, the, the, yeah. the, the you know. Um, but, uh, anyway, I didn't mean that as a criticism. No, I, I totally agree. I, I think a, a spiritual community has to be involved at that level because, um, what I like about your approach is that the whole thing about personification is you're getting people to not just agree intellectually that, yeah, we got to do something about this, but by, by making it sacred to the person, by, um, sacralizing it, you have, you, you get a kind of 
impetus that you you don't get otherwise. It's the kind of impetus that brought that got us the great cathedrals and all this amazing stuff that's been done through that kind of inspiration. And that's what we that's where it all begins. We got to have that change of heart to begin to push from the ground up. Uh, you know, because otherwise, if it's just a a money issue or a um, an abstract issue or a scientific issue, I don't think it's going to have the urgency and the uh, the personal uh, importance that we have to have to to move in the way that we need to move. Yeah, yeah. amen. Can I share with you something? Uh, <laughs> it takes me a little while to explain it, but it's. It's about personification, and I'd love to share with you an experience I had about personification and the story of Job in the Bible. Okay. Um, I remember my father, a conservative Baptist pastor, telling me the whole story. Um, For our listeners' sake, God and the devil, at least this is how he told, God and the devil make a bet about Job's faith. The devil says uh, Job loves God because, because he's got it so good. And God says, he'd still follow me even if I took away his family, his wealth, inflicted him with painful disease and so on. And then he sets about doing it to prove his point. And it's a bet that God kind of loses, oddly enough, because Job eventually breaks down and questions God. How could you do this to me? Mm -hmm. Um, Then God lets him have it. Who are you to complain? Where were you when I laid the foundations of heaven and earth Mm -hmm. or brought forth life or made your existence even possible? After a lengthy admonishment, Job bows his head and says, I shut my mouth. Well, as a young secular humanist, I saw this as a horrible story of a wicked God and the worst of all ethical messages possible. Mm -hmm. And when I understood, as many people do, it is. But... As time went by, I came to learn about Stoicism and walking in accord with nature and later Taoism and Buddhism, and I came into a new relationship with the cosmos. And um, I hadn't thought about the story of Job in years until I saw the Terrence Malick abstract film, The Tree of Life. And I don't know if you've seen this film. I did. Uh, Yeah, okay. Well, in one of the most memorable scenes, smack dab in the middle of this film about a family and their struggles, it takes a detour and you're suddenly treated to the story of the entire universe before returning to their little Texas town. Talk about perspective. So I did not expect that. and But then I realized it was preceded by one of the characters asking, why me? It's the story of Job. Mm-hmm. So there's this version of this for naturalists that's about learning to see beyond our judgments made from solely from the perspective of our individual desires and ego. Now, when I, now when I hear the phrase, where were you when I laid the foundations of heaven and earth, I'm deeply moved and humbled by it, even as an atheist. And it calls us to recognize our tiny, tiny part in this grand majestic whole. And the key difference between whether this story is a hor- one of a horrible tyrant or one filled with an indispensable wisdom is entirely dependent on whether we understand it in literal or personified terms. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that the, the theist-atheist debate, frankly, is one of the great sideshows. It's one of the great collective insanities mm-hmm. to, uh, today because, uh, you know, 
Theism, I believe in God, interpreted as a supernatural otherworldly being. Atheism, ain't no such thing as God, understood as a supernatural otherworldly being. Where both are, you know, you got millions of people, at least tens of thousands of people, arguing about that. When the one real God, that is reality, personified or not, we've been out of right relationship to, and we're now about to experience consequences of biblical proportion. And meanwhile, the earth is burning while we're talking about these abstractions. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I I interpret the book of Job as as a basic sort of human nature thing, which is that – Will you trust reality? For me, trusting reality is is faith in God. The, the two are synonyms. To say I have I trust the universe, yeah. you know, is to say that if whatever happens, I'm going to trust that I can adapt to it. I can evolve with it. I can be generous in this situation. I can I can do the best I can. Um, it's kind of like you know the universe is conspiring on my behalf. Okay, I'm personifying the universe to even say that. Now, is the universe conspiring on my behalf? Like, could I make the case with my friend Michael Shermer at Skeptic Magazine and convince him that the universe is conspiring on my behalf? Probably not. I wouldn't even try to because I don't think it's true objectively. I think the universe would just as soon kill me. But if, but what I know from subjective experience is that there is no more useful belief in my life as a useful belief. There's no more practical stance I trust that the universe is conspiring on my behalf, not because I think it's true or would argue that it's true objectively, because I know it's true subjectively. I know that when I act as if it's true, I love my life, I'm more forgiving, I'm more <laughs> generous, I'm, I, I, I mean, my relationships are healthier. So, you know, I think that's what Job is about. It's like, are you only going to trust the universe when things are going well with you? Or are you going to be able to trust the universe when everything seems to be against you? You know. So. Yeah, and, and more than just being like a, a superstition, it's more like, say, a surfer, for example. I use this analogy a lot, even though I'm not a surfer at all. Uh, a surfer is sitting there and he or she is bobbing and moving with the waves, dancing with the waves. But at no point when they go to take the next movement or shift their body, at no point did they ever know for certain that that wave was going to be right there to catch them at that moment. It was more of a feel and a familiarization and a relationship that they had with the waves that allowed them to kind of dance in harmony with them. Exactly, a relationship. That was the word you used. That's exactly what it is. And when they wipe out, they're fine with it. (laughs) That's part of the process. Well, right. the surfer attitude is a, is a classic. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, well do, do, you, do you all know Bron Taylor by any chance? Yeah, Dark Green Religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Bron Taylor's a dear friend, and, uh, and uh, we've stayed at his house a couple times. And, in fact, it was interesting because I wanted to make sure we had time to come around to my second main mentor because, I really, this is the most important stuff that I'm sharing these days, uh, which is William Catton and his book, Overshoot. Yeah. Um, it's the single most important book I've ever read in my life. Um, I tell people if they only read one book and the rest of their life, make it overshoot. Um, it's that, it's really that important. It's, it's that significant. It's a total worldview shift. Uh, I thought I understood the ecological worldview. I didn't have a clue. Connie and I both, both of us as different, as radically different as we are, both of us count William Catton's book overshoot to be the most important book we've ever read. And I was at Bron Taylor's house as I was reading it. And he said, wow. He said, I saw you, I see you reading Catton's overshoot. He said, uh, day four who founded Earth First gave me a copy of Cat and he said it was the most important book he'd ever read in his life and I said yeah that's exactly the way I'm feeling and he said did you hear Cat just died like two weeks ago 
And I said, no. And I contacted his, his grandson and make a long story short, I became, uh, I, 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 recorded the audio, an unofficial audio of the entire book. In fact, if there's only one thing that any of your viewers or listeners remember from this conversation, it would be uh, check out my Grace Limits Audios page. Uh, again, from that okay. main website, thegreatstory.org. If you just click on Grace Limits, um, uh, the two most important pages on my website are Standing for the Future, this three-part video, which is really the culmination of my life's work. I feel like it's the by far my most important legacy contribution, standing for the future. Um, uh, but, but also the Grace Limits audios. I spent probably a thousand, maybe 1500 hours over the course of the last two and a half, three years recording the best books and blog posts and essays related to this intersection of science, inspiration, and sustainability, um, especially around uh, Grace Limits, uh, carrying capacity. Um, mm -hmm. And so William Catton has been my great mentor. And it, interestingly that we were just talking about Bron Taylor because uh, Bron Taylor is also a world expert on the spirituality of surfing. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, okay. There's a whole chapter in there on that, I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. That's wonderful. So that's where I was going. That's like the, the yeah. circuitous route that got me. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Um, and I definitely, uh, you know, I, I plan to, like I said, we're going to go over some of your prescriptives here that you have socially and individually that we can do. Um, and your your site, thegreatstory.org, has all kinds of numerous uh, uh, links and resources. Yeah, it's it's got too much, frankly. It's I mean, it's been <laughs> like an, an encyclopedia that we've been building on and building on and building yeah. on. Somebody could spend, you know you know, a year and never tire themselves. That's why I, I specifically suggest to people go to the standing for the future videos okay. um, and the grace limits page, uh, because there you get access to all what I really consider now in this time of history now, by far the most important stuff. And the biggest one that I get into in the standing for the future videos, as you know, is uh, that the reality's rules, 10 commandments to avoid extinction. Like if mm -hmm. we, if we have a, a proper name for, for, for reality, like a, a, a sacred name, a personification. Okay. If we, whether we call reality, you know, God or the goddess or the universe or just reality, what is reality telling us about what we need to do, how we need to live as humans in order to have a thriving future, to move into a healthy, just future. And so these 10 commandments are really, you could say the principles of sustainability using mythic language, um, that I think, I, I really think I'm always I've been farming these out to environmentalists, scientists, theologians, and others, and I'm always inviting. In fact, I would now invite the two of you and anybody who's watching or listening to this. Um, if you when you see these Ten Commandments to Avoid Extinction, these realities rules, if there's anything that you think that you know, because I'm not channeling another worldly entity. I'm saying you check your heart <laughs> and you tell me whether you think that reality is telling us this through evidence. Right. So if you think that reality is saying something else other than what I'm saying, by all means, I want to hear that. The only thing I would request is that you say what the evidence is to support your claim yep. that reality is telling us something else. Yep. Um, because I think it really is vital that we hear what reality is telling us through evidence and then develop sort of the the collective will to act on that in ways uh, because what I sometimes say is that any theology in the future that doesn't include ecology 
is a theology that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will condemn us for. Uh, it, uh, the, the heart of all theologies a hundred years from now, 200, 500 years from now, assuming we survive, assuming we don't go extinct, will include ecology. There's just no question. Yeah. And so if ecology is the new theology, or at least if ecology is the heart of any theology that won't be condemned in the future, then um, what is reality telling us about how to live ecologically? Hey, Daniel, just yeah. ju can I just uh, frame this conversation a little bit? Because I know you're going to ask some specific questions here. We're getting into the ecology environmental bit here. And uh, I kind of want to um, see if we can frame it in terms of emotions. We were talking about before how you got to hit people where they are and you got to move them, move the heart as, as much as the mind or more. And mm. so um, if we can imagine uh, a listener who, I mean, I, we have a whole, all different kinds of listeners on, on this topic, uh, but we might have a lot of listeners that are, uh, comp they might be completely committed to the idea that we need to make change uh, in terms of the environment and, and be worried about climate change. They might even be, uh, you know, they might recycle and do all the things. They might even be um, committed to it enough that they would, you know, write an article that would go kind of anonymously out there somehow. But the person that I would like us to touch tonight, if possible, is the person who then goes to their, the people closest to them, their, their friends, their family, and it feels like it could be divisive to engage those people who may have different opinions on this topic. What can we say to those people where it really matters and where it has the potential to set father against son, brother against brother, sister against sister, friend against friend. What can we say to those people tonight? That's a great question. And I, I, what I often say is that we are tribal creatures. Our brains are, are programmed to have a very strong in-group, out-group sort of uh, mentality. And people who we perceive as out-group, we won't listen to. Uh, people who we perceive as in-group, we will listen to. And so I... Uh, I, I will often tell people, use my three videos or one of them, just one of the videos in my Standing for the Future series as a way of helping to build a bridge between you and your more conservative brother, sister, aunt, uncle, whoever. But also, if, 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 somebody, any, if there's anybody who's watching this or listening to this who's really conservative politically or religiously, um, or if you have a really conservative person in your life or people in your life who are very conservative, you know, Fox News watchers and, you know, Republicans or, you know, uh, evangelicals, whatever. Um, I have found that Catherine Hayhoe, H-A-Y-H-O-E, is an evangelical climate scientist, world-class evangelical climate scientist who's married to an evangelical megachurch pastor. And she's about 40 years old. She's good looking, but not like, you know, super sexy looking. So she's really, she's got that homely. She's just awesome. She's absolutely awesome. And she can literally, and has done this a dozen, two dozen times, she can go into a town meeting of 350 Texas Republican evangelicals and win 80% of them over to climate. This woman rocks. This woman rocks. 
So, mm-hmm. so let her do the work, you know, um, or Bob Inglis, I-N-G-L-I-S. Bob Inglis is a Republican evangelical from South Carolina who is just he, – he rocks. This guy is amazing at reaching other conservatives, Republicans or evangelicals, and bringing them into an ecological uh, deep-time understanding. So, you know, if you find that even my Standing for the Future videos are a little too radical, let Catherine Hayhoe or Bob Inglis do your work for you. Wow, those are great resources. And and what a great question too, BT. Thank you. Um yeah, we are getting to the really cool. Yeah, I've seen her before. She's oh, cool. okay. and and she's got these short videos on her website that are just so useful. I mean, I I back about, oh, I don't know, 5 years ago, I interviewed 38 of the world's most esteemed Christian theologians, scientists, preachers who fully embrace ecology and evolution. And I mean, I interviewed the top Catholics, the top evangelicals, the top Protestants, um, and um, and 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 what we all had in common was we all had deep time eyes. That is, we all had an evolutionary understanding of reality that went back millions and billions of years and forward millions and billions of years. So we had deep time eyes. We all had a global heart and a global commitment. We weren't just com- concerned with our own soul salvation or our own, you know, in group or whatever. But we were all committed to the health and well being of the larger body of life. And we all valued evidence as in some very real sense divine revelation or divine communication. And, you know, those three things, deep time eyes, a global heart, and a valuing of evidence as, as revelatory, that united all 38 of us. And mm. I think we need to find places where we agree and can align with because we just don't have time to fight each other over metaphysical and theological issues. We need to find ways of uniting, especially around ecology, living in right relationship, and, and shifting our economic system from one that is demonic, frankly. Uh, I use that word in a, in a naturalistic way. Uh, we have an economic system that measures progress by how fast it can take the biosphere and turn it into pollution. Yeah, I was going to mention that that was one of your points. Um, I want to be sure and leave the listeners with some action items. And socially, you had two points in your video. We have to shift how we measure success, progress, and growth was number one. Exactly. It's a life-centered or biocentric ways, right? Exactly. Number two, we have to align self-interest and the well-being of the whole in in the incentive structures. Right. Those, yeah, those are the two systemic issues that are the most vital, and people will find that, again, in the Standing for the Future videos. I think it's mm-hmm. in number three. And you would go uh, into detail about each Exactly. Yeah. But in terms of personal thing, what I, what I want to make sure I want to leave your listeners or, or viewers is I often will say, and I, I didn't, this is not a Michael Dowd original. I got most of this from, from Joanna Macy, um, another one of my mentors, uh, is to love something, learn something. Let go of something and carry something forward. Hmm. To love something, that is to love, to love something other than just your, fam- your human relationships, but to love nature, to love your backyard, to love your garden, to love hmm. the, the forest behind, you know, but to love, for example, last summer, I spent the entire summer driving an hour from Ludington, Michigan. We spent the whole uh, summer in Ludington, Michigan. I drove an hour south once a, once a week. Spent, spent four hours watering 400 baby trees and then drove uh, an hour back north. So I spent the better part of a day tending to baby trees. These little, these were like my baby trees. It's like my daddy energy got, like, you know. <laughs> so love something, learn something. I mean, I've spent the last two and a half years learning about grace limits and carrying capacity and sort of all this scary stuff and then how to hold the scary stuff in ways that don't just freak people out. So that's what I've been doing, loving something, learning something. 
letting go of something. Connie and I, we hardly ever fly anymore. Connie won't fly anymore. Um, we've let go of flying. We've let go, as I mentioned earlier, we've unstuffocated. We let go of a lot and, of the stuff. That and you're not flying for environmental reasons, right? Is that what I'm picking well, up? The, yes, exactly. It's about yeah. mostly just to reduce our carbon, to exactly. have as light a carbon footprint as we can. Right. Um, but also, uh, my favorite author on the planet, I've read 11 of his books in the last two and a half years uh, and, and I've recorded about 300 of his blog posts, John Michael Greer, the guy who yep. walks on water as far as I can uh, concern. And, uh, um, and in fact, Connie and I just in the last, oh God, I've never admitted this publicly yet. I, 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 <laughs> uh, first time here in the last, like, spiritual like today. Last, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, this is a historic moment here. But just in the last week and a half, we so – think highly of John Michael Greer. Every Wednesday night, we read his blog post because he, he's been posting for 10 years every Wednesday night on his blog, which is called the Arch Druid Report. Mm -hmm. He happens to be the elected official of the Druid religion, but that's not what he's well known for. He's actually his penetrating analysis of industrial civilization. And if ecology is the new theology, he's my favorite theologian. He's not actually a theologian. He's a historian and a, a, a brilliant thinker. But in any case, so the week for us Again, Wednesday night is when he posts every Wednesday night, which is like a chapter in a book. It's like a well-thought-out essay. The week for us is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Archer Druid Day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, and so just in the last two weeks, this is what I'm admitting for the first time, is that whenever we mention the name John Michael Greer or mention the Archer Druid, one or the both of us goes, bless his holy name. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, but uh, but I've recorded you, a lot of it. Can you stuff. say BHHN if you're in a hurry? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's pretty good. I like it. You're giving me an out or, or <laughs> in an email. Yeah, yeah exactly. Huh? But um, but yeah, yeah. On my Grace Limits page, um, you'll find that uh, anybody watching this, um, uh, again, going to if you just Google Grace Limits audios, you'll get there. Um, but. Uh, I've, I've, I've identified what are like the essential, just like the essential uh, blog posts or essays and then the, the essential books. I've tried to prioritize them because otherwise it's just too overwhelming. There's just too much research, too much stuff there. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, and there's so much more that we we could uh, we, would, we all need to hear. So I'm, I'm just going to say it again. Uh, TheGreatStory.org is Michael and Connie's uh, substantial and informative website. Check out the Grace Limits page there, as well as the uh, uh, Standing, Standing for Future the Future series. Right. And uh, Reverend Michael Dowd, thank you so much for your time today. I hope the society can continue to be supportive to you and Connie Barlow's mission. Uh, wish you both all the best. And I'll be following up with you, too, uh, we we've been, we're refurbishing our own website, and so I want to give you guys a special um, real estate. Um, cool. Well, uh, uh, Daniel, Brandon, I just want to say that the work that you all are doing, the work that the spiritual naturalists are doing, and that you're organizing of this has been so valuable. I mean, I, you know, there have been people that have identified with religious naturalism for quite a long time, but they tend to be pretty academic. They don't know the internet that well. They're not that great at promoting themselves. And what you all have done to help further a sacred naturalistic perspective is just kick us Buddhists. So <laughs> deep, deep bow of gratitude to both of you and to all the people on your team. That really means a lot coming from you, uh, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you. 
Thank you. And let me just tell our listeners, uh, we also want to mention, please sign up now for our October online course, Introduction to Spiritual Naturalism. And you can find all those links and everything at our website, uh, spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. So uh, thank you, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and join our community at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. J.N. Forrest is our technical director, and Daniel Strain is program director. Our hosts are Daniel, J. and B.T. Newberg. Please share our program with others and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today. <laughs>